Welcome to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast. Each episode is designed to help the busy healthcare professional break down all aspects of heart failure into different topics so you can listen on the go during the course of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. The AAHFN is a specialty organization dedicated to advancing nursing education, clinical practice, and research to improve heart failure patients' outcomes. You can learn more about the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses and subscribe to this podcast today at aahfn.org. Hello and welcome to our next podcast uh, from AHFN with our Heart Failure Focus. And uh, just a delight to uh, talk about the Heart Failure Overview, what's new and what's hot in some of our ph- pharmacological um, uh, material within Heart Failure. Uh, we're very pleased to have Midge Bowers with us um, this evening. And uh, Midge is a clinical professor and lead faculty for the Cardiovascular Specialty Division at Duke University of Nursing and practices as a nurse practitioner in the Heart Failure Access Clinic. Her scholarly work is focused on uh, patients with cardiovascular diseases, interprofessional educational and simulation, and as an association of the American College of Cardiology and a certified health simulator educator, she's the only nurse practitioner on the leadership team of the AC Simulation Council. She is actively involved in the American Association of Nurse Practitioners and recognized as a fellow AANP and the American Academy of Nursing. And I've had the opportunity to look up some of her work, and it's just a, really a delight uh, to be on uh, on the podcast today as we talk about some of the new, uh, some maybe not new, but maybe ways that we're learning to use the pharmacology that we have in heart failure. Um, we're really seeing impacts not only in reduced ejection fraction, but we're understanding mid-range, we're understanding preserved ejection fraction. So um, with that said, uh, Midge, uh, we'll get into it real quick. We don't have a lot of time. Um, I'd like to hear uh, kind of some of your views of where we are with this four pillar of therapy, uh, how you're using that, uh, how do you um, start working your patients into that process and 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 really up titrating those medicines and just your, your uh, uh, the way you work that uh, in your contemporary management. Thanks, Chris. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's really exciting. I really believe in AAHFN. And actually, I took the very first certified heart failures nursing exam and passed. Yay. But as far as the four pillars, you know, I've been at heart failure a long time and um, love that we have more and more medications to treat our patients, especially with HEFREP. But just a reminder to our audience, you know, when you're thinking about beta blockers, really metoprolol, succinate, and carbetalol, bisoprolol is out there, right? But not many of our patients are on it. And then thinking about the ASARBs and ARNIs, and things that we have to do in practice to titrate those up, yeah. they're kind of two different approaches. One, we tend to worry more about blood pressure. The others, we tend to think about heart rate, but it's a combination of those two and, and renal function as well. Um, the MRAs, you know, we, we're lucky we only have two, but what I wanted to share with the group especially is that not only do we have empagliflozin and dupagliflozin, those SGLT2 inhibitors, but as recently as May of 23, yay, based on the soloist worsening heart failure trial, we now have sotagliflozin. I talk in generics because that's the only way I remember the classes of the medications. <laughs> but but I think one of the things that I've learned also um, in my practice is to titrate up quickly. We're, I'm fortunate that my inpatient colleagues, both nurses and NPs and PAs, 
really focus on getting the patients on that four-pillar therapy while inpatient so that when I see them in a hospital follow-up visit, five to seven days later, I'm evaluating those therapies, but I'm also titrating either by phone or I'm fortunate right now we have a pharmacist. That's been a blessing to help do a titration clinic therapy. So that's kind of my approach. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about HEFPEP, I know, a little later on. Right. But really, rapid titration, Joe, we, we kind of get stuck sometimes, yeah. don't you think? I do. We're busy. You said you were, you know, you see 20 to 30 patients a day. My goodness. How do you spend the time in telling someone why, when they feel good, should you titrate the med? Right. Before we really want to maximize that outcome. There's, there's much, to, not debate, but there much, there's much conversation in, in several of the meetings that I've been through this year that, that really talk about sequencing, sequencing uh, these, these families of medicines. And, and I think um, in many ways, we, we've really uh, approached this from an individual perspective. We, we, we generally try to start all of them, and then we try to maximize the dose based on how that patient presents. So if, if they have a high blood pressure, we may really push our ACE or RNA. If, if they have high heart rate, well, we may really try to optimize our beta blockade. But the idea is to really get them involved with that and push it to the limit. Is, is that a fair assessment and, and a reasonable way to approach titrating those medicines in those patients? Absolutely. You know, for those of us who have been doing this over almost 25 years, we were, you know, you start one, start low, go slow, poo-poo on that, right? We're moving in a different dimension now. It's start all four exactly what you said, Chris, get them all four on board, because why wouldn't we want to reduce risk of worsening heart failure, death, hospitalization? And if we can share that kind of information with patients, I think then they understand it. Yes, I agree. We we always um, try to have reasonable expectations with our patients. And uh, each time we talk about those medicines, I, I try to help them understand they're not simple blood pressure medicines. Uh, this is why you're on them. This is what we expect to see. And if you start to have this kind of problem, you let me know, even if it's before the visit, because some of these things we can take care of through our triage service or over the phone. Uh, but the idea is to not just settle uh, with being mediocre. We really want to maximize these therapies to improve outcomes over time. Absolutely, Chris. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think this is where our nursing colleagues, you know, working at the full scope, if you have standing orders, I'm in the process of working with uh, some of the nurses in clinic and actually some of my students in developing standing orders that every point of contact we make with a patient is an opportunity to titrate medicines, right? So if we think about it that way, I call it the octopus effect. And I, it, you know, our tentacles are touching them face to face, telemedicine, phone calls, whoever's calling them. The other thing I use the term forever for forever four meds. These are your, for if, if we know they're going to be on them so that they know if I'm making a choice on what to get refilled, I'm going to use my forever four. That's uh, that's that's a great point and a great way to place that so that they can remember it. That's a, that's a terrific idea. Um, I also have been uh, very thankful to, to hear in a couple of conferences here lately, they talk about de-prescribing things that patients don't need. You know, we, we have so many medicines that are helpful uh, we sometimes don't want to really get out of our space or sphere of influence and look at those things. Hey, how long have you been on this and what's it for? We really do need to help them understand these are important because they can improve your quality of life and your life expectancy. And some of these others, uh, maybe not so much. So talk to your primary care or whomever 
and and let's really review that and and so we can maximize the things that help. And do you know what is the most frequent offender? Again, I work mostly. Uh, many of my patients are seen um, in hospital follow up. Is omeprazole? They put them on it for stress alter reduction, and we can take that away because it also inhibits how the medications we're prescribing for heart failure actually work. Absolutely. So we want the maximum efficacy. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And that and, and meloxicam, I don't know oh. why people, they, you know, it's an inset. My goodness, it drives me nuts. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of move into where we are with preserved ejection fraction. I think with uh, the last, the latest guidelines that, that we, we, we saw back in, in May of 22, and then we've had kind of an executive summary that that has pointed us a little bit more that we're really beginning to differentiate uh, what preserved ejection fraction is. And, and, and there may be, um, maybe not completely specific, but I think we're beginning to see the emergence of maybe three phenotypes, those that have kind of conventional uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction as a consequence of diabetes and hypertension and obesity and those type things where the, the LV is non-compliant and stiff and it really needs to be approached in a specific way versus an infiltrative process. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on amyloid and how we differentiate those patients. And, and now with Holcomb, particularly obstructive Holcomb, uh, yes. with the new first-in-class drug, and, and the importance of really understanding what the, the, the uh, expression of their heart failure is and the etiology and how we can have success uh, kind of teasing that important information out as we, as we treat them. So, wow, that was a lot of information. So I'm going to hit it kind of with some some straight up talk here. So the phenotypes, you know, I always thought older, obese folks with sleep apnea, they have um, that stiff heart. Yes, that's one group. But what about those metabolic derangements? And and we know that obesity is associated with very active, it's an active organ, right? With all these different uh, inflammatory markers that Mm -hmm. contribute also to heart failure. And then those younger folks who may present with a totally different phenotype of heart failure, maybe they are not producing the natriuretic peptides like we think. <laughs> so one of the exciting things to me in HEFPATH management in general was not just treat the comorbid illness, dot, 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 right? But was we actually know that SGLT2 inhibitors, specifically dapagliflozin and empagliflozin, have a class one indication now. Yay. We have something that will help our patients feel better and and reduce their symptoms of breathlessness um, and edema. But I really liked what you said about uh, differentiating with uh, things like infiltrative cardiomyopathies. We are fortunate at Duke to have a cardiac amyloid clinic that now has uh, Joanna Fajardo is a nurse practitioner who works with Mike Corey, one of our physicians. And they really have been instrumental in identifying and having an amyloid clinic to be able to prescribe, right, uh, not only patisserin, but tafamidus. Yeah. It's the only agent approved that stabilizes the tetrameters that cause the amyloid. I mean, in your career, Chris, have you seen anything like this before? It, it's it's really hard to keep up. And, and some of the success stories have been really remarkable. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to some more longer term data with our amyloid but, patients, because I, I certainly think we're going to see some improvement in functional capacity. We have not crossed that ridge where we've seen as much mortality data. We've, we've certainly seen that with the But now that we're beginning to look for those patients earlier, 
we we address the disease process. We're, we're learning how to manage it. I really think we're going to see uh, an improvement in in their their disease course, and and I'm so I'm excited about that. Uh, and it's hard to keep up with all the information, frankly. No, I totally agree. I mean, I still have to ask, what's the scan we're ordering now sure. to to for diagnosis? Right? You know, we've evolved in such a rapid time frame. I think the other thing I want the listeners to think about are those non-cardiac symptoms that should clue you into possible amyloid, whether it's TTR or AL, but things like carpal tunnel syndrome, neuropathy, right? Nocturia, edema, palpitations. Those could be cardiac. They could not be. But when you're still struggling, think amyloid. That's what I want people to really think of. And remember, beta blockers are not your friend, not your friend in amyloid, right? Right. Your right. primary treatment should be treating edema with loop diuretics and then um, spironolactone. So again, this is where we're a team. And I go to write a prescription for beta blocker and one of my team says, Mitch, do you really want to do that this man? And I go, oh, you're right. The last thing you mentioned was uh, HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, <laughs> especially with obstruction. And my gosh, Mabicamptin. I don't prescribe it myself, but I have learned more about it this year as a new cardiac myosin inhibitor, which not only what blew my mind, it improves structure. Yeah. So instead of these, you know, septal procedures and gosh, all these, I say old timey procedures, this is so wonderful that we can reduce filling pressures and reduce symptoms yeah. and even improve mitral valve function. So I think that you know, that's great from our clinical side, what we're looking at, but patients feel better and can exercise more. What has been your experience? We, I have, frankly, it has exceeded expectations. Um, we were really excited. We, we've watched the progression of that drug. We recognize that we had several of those patients. Some years ago, we, we developed a little bit of a technique with radiofrequency ablation where we would ablate the septal wall, uh, and that was published uh, back in 2017, 2018. It worked, but it never did really gain, gain traction. But we continue to see a lot of those patients. And, and just frankly, I've been surprised at the uh, consistency of the response. We have had some folks, I think uh, I have actually started um, um, 16 or 18 patients currently uh, since May or so of this year. I'm one of the two providers here that have gone through the rims, and, and we, can, we can do that. We've kind of developed a pathway. But we have seen just some incredible response, even in those folks. Uh, we currently have one who had a, a previous myectomy. We've also had two who had uh, alcohol ablations. And we and, and it actually did well for quite some time. But with the advent of that, that drug, as we saw the, the gradients in, increase, um, we're still seeing a tremendous response. And I was really surprised by that. My, my thinking there was they probably already scarred. Are, are we going right. to see the same kind of improvement? And and we really have it. And thus far, we have not seen the reduction in LVEF, and, um, which is, is part of a, a question that still needs to be answered uh, while we're improving this modulating benefit of reducing the myosin active expression are we also going to decrease LV function? And, and thankfully, we've not seen that in, in our sample size, but it is really exciting. Well, now I know who to refer my patients to <laughs> uh, because you have a wealth of experience, well, you know, which is remarkable. And, and like any new medication or new to market, 
we need to see that longer term outcome data, right? To see yeah. how it, is it sustainable, you know? Uh, you're um, exactly right. And the, the success, though, I think is even helping our group kind of keep it top of mind. You know, good. used to, we would, we would wait till uh, certainly the, the gradients were high, but hey, maybe they're not that symptomatic. They're not really excited about having an open heart surgery to correct this process. And, and, and unfortunately, many times they would go for quite some time and they were very sick. And now we're like, hey, we have a therapy that can help and, and, and let's, let's go ahead and move this, move this along. And, and it's really been a, a wonderful thing. And um, I think it's helping us treat all of our heart failure patients better, frankly, understanding, you know, what they may have and, and specific targets to treat. Um, That's great. Hey, Chris, the last thing I'd like to cover, because it just came out from the European Society of Cardiology on anemia, is the heart FID yeah, study. Right. Absolutely. You, you, got, was, you guys were big with that, and we were in that trial, so I'm anxious to hear were you. Were you? Okay. I was going to say, yep. for, for our listeners, it was a 30,000-patient uh, double-blind RCT done over multiple centers. So both Chris and I were fortunate to enroll people. And this study looked at using carboxymaltose uh, in patients with HEFREF and iron deficiency. And they really wanted to look at all-cause mortality at one year, heart failure hospitalizations at one year, um, but also six-minute walk tests at six months. Well, although it didn't meet its pre-specified endpoints, it really did show there was some benefit in that six-minute walk mm -hmm. test at the quality of life. So I just want people to keep that in mind, you know, using treating iron deficiency, whether inpatient or you're fortunate enough to have outpatient options for this, not the iron we used to have to spend time testing and making sure they tolerate it. Ferrocarboxymaltose is safe to use. There's very minimal reaction. And, and even in the guidelines, if you really think about it, um, for both HEFREV and mid-range FF, mid-range uh, yeah. EF, gosh, uh, I with iron deficiency, it iron supplementation has been found to reduce heart failure symptoms and improve quality of life. And isn't I, that what we want for our patients to know, feel I, better and live longer? I, I'm really glad you touched on that. I, um, I I'd hope I, I saw that at a late breaking uh, a trial last week, and I was really anxious to see how that worked out. And I was a little disappointed we didn't see some of the outcomes that we wanted. Um, and I'm still not sure. I wonder if, if maybe we understand the right patient. Maybe uh, it may be a. I'm, I'm looking forward to some of the sub analysis because I've had some patients that do so much better. Uh, right. But it is important, I think, with heart failure management, critically important, uh, as we as nurses, nurses and NPs and, and bedside providers and those who are really engaged in patient care, quality of life is still a huge metric. And if we can help our patients breathe better, stay out of the hospital, if they can enjoy life with their, their grandkids or their family or, or stay on their job, I still think that is an admirable goal. And, and we have been able to see that, um, you know, with a, a fair and confirm. And, and it, it, I think those trials kind of surprise people at the improvement. So I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you kind of presented that in a way that, 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 that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. I don't think that trial was a failure. I think it validated what we knew. We still haven't understood exactly how to bridge that gap to mortality, but morbidity and, and feeling better is still an important metric, and we need to continue to pursue that. I totally agree. Couldn't have said it better. 
Absolutely. Uh, one drug that I have only used a handful of times, and, and I'm anxious to hear your experience, that's still relatively new, is erisiquat. At the Victoria trial, there seems to be a group of people, the ones that I've had a little bit of success in particular are those who, whose pressure is a little low and I've been surprised. It doesn't seem to drop the pressure too much. And with uh, kind of poor kidney function, even with creatinine clearance kind of low, this new vasodilator that works with a different pathway. And have you had any uh, experience with that uh, that particular drug in your patient population? So the, the two times that I can recall right now are patients who were discharged from the hospital on it. They had been admitted. You know, the indications are recent hospitalization or the need for IV Lasix. And I can tell you, just Tuesday of this week, I gave two patients 100 of IV Lasix in my clinic and sent them home. So when I see them back next week, or I did put in my note, because they're going to see a cardio- the regular cardiologist, I said, consider initiation of Verisigua. Okay. Because, you know, they both had low EFs. This one gentleman, um, his blood pressure was in the 90s. His there, There's so many variables. And I think the good news for me is that the hypotension that I've seen in patients is not, I'm starting you on this and your blood pressure drops. It's your blood pressure. Once you tolerate it, that's why I like the inpatient start. It's uh, we can look at it outpatient. Yeah. And that anemia is the only other really adverse event that the, um, that we're supposed to really monitor for. It doesn't affect kidney function. It doesn't change potassium or glucose or even uric acid. I'm, I'm really kind of curious to find out where our niche for that particular drug is. Exactly. I think it's there. We've had a few successes and then we've had some that didn't respond as well. And and I believe we've got to understand that. And and one, maybe just touch on quick, I know we're running short on time, is is the advent of this new sub Q Lasix. Um, yes, I'm so glad you asked about it. And we've had some uh, terrific response to that. It, it's a little awkward because it's almost like 24 hours before we can get it sometimes. Um, we've begged and pleaded, and we have some samples now for those that we really think need it, and maybe we can use it. But uh, I'd like to hear some of your experience with that. Actually, I have to praise my colleague, Todd McVeigh, and I'm meeting actually tomorrow for updates on reimbursement with the vendor. But Sub-Q Lasix has been a godsend for a couple of populations, older adults, yep. right? And I'm talking late 80s, early 90s. And then the last, uh, because partially transportation, partially you know, functionality, families can do this safely at home. It is easy to use for the listeners. If you're not familiar with Sub-Q Lasix, look it up. It is a 50 milligram, 30 milligram bolus, mm-hmm. right? That's 30, for, 30 and 12, at, and now we're for four. And then 12 and a half for yep. the next four hours for a total of 80. Yep. And you can do it many days in a row. That's the other thing I love. So so patients who have difficulty with transportation, older adults tolerate it very well. I just say, I tell them, think of it like um, if you wear an insulin pump. It's that easy to apply. And the fact that you know I can get your labs today at a visit, we can order it. And don't order it on a Friday, especially of a holiday weekend. But otherwise, the company and the whole process is remarkable. It, it really is. I, we're really trying to understand that niche. There was a, a trial, and, and you guys were heavily involved, that was uh, more of a review, some 20,000 patients. And, and it suggested that about two-thirds of hospitalizations for heart failure could have been resolved with simple IV Lasix. And I think that the question that we have to answer is how do we identify that two-thirds when they walk into our clinic? 
right. which is the patient that could respond to this therapy and we could avert the ER visit, the, the hospitalization. And, and that's been our, our uh, learning curve. It's probably not the, the, uh, the shocky type patient that's cold and clammy with low blood pressure or bad kidneys or bad potassium. It's probably more that patient who had some dietary indiscretion uh, or something that has them tanked up. And we think we can get over the hump and avoid a hospitalization. And, and uh, we've, we've really been excited about that, still trying to figure out exactly how we're going to use it in day-to-day practice. So I would just tell you, think of the warm and wet, right? Yep. Hemodynamically yep. stable, volume overloaded, no matter what the etiology is. It's, this is a, a safe group to get that extra fluid off, especially if they're not absorbing uh, well from their gut. You've titrated up their oral meds and it's just not working. Sub-Q, giving a more con- continuous Uh, The pharmacokinetic profile is really good regarding the bioavailability. So I'll just end with that because I know we've been chatting a while. That's right. I think we probably have to wrap it up. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you for just talking with us and in very practical sense. This is how we take care of patients. And and, uh, we really appreciate that so much and looking forward to meeting you down the road and uh, and working with you some some type way. And uh, yes. That sounds great. Maybe we can collaborate on some sub-Q LASIK study. Sounds great. I hope you have a great evening, and, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You've been listening to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast, brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. To learn more about the AAHFN and to subscribe to this podcast, please visit aahfn.org. We'll see you next time on the Heart Failure Focus Podcast.